The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, we talk about adapting to various gardening challenges. We explore making tough decisions in gardening throughout the latter seasons of life. Also, having the best attitude toward tough decisions. Mobility restrictions began taking a toll on 84-year-old Dwayne Pancoast. His gardening abilities were changing, but not his knowledge. He began sharing his and other senior gardeners' experiences in his blog, The Geriatric Gardener, in February of 2017. After posting bi-monthly adaptive gardening stories, Dwayne decided to compile the best of his posts into a self-published book, The Geriatric Gardener. Dwayne feels having the garden information at your fingertips is a benefit for every senior gardener. Dwayne continues to work in the family marketing communication business, which he started in 1985. The firm serves tree, landscape, and lawn care businesses. This has been Episode 129, Gardeners Never Retire, Overcoming the Challenges in Your Senior Years, with Dwayne Pancos. Dwayne, why did you decide not to give up on gardening? I didn't really decide to give up on gardening. Old age crept up on me. One day when I couldn't get up from kneeling, I decided I was going to have to garden a bit differently. Thus started my second career preaching about adaptive gardening. What is it about gardening that keeps you wanting to go with it no matter what age you are? I like plants and plants seem to like me. When I could no longer do outside work, I was fortunate enough to have a mature, mostly woody plant landscape at my home, which I was able to hire out the maintenance work. So I've concentrated on indoor gardening, especially Tillandsia air plants, because they're fun, they're curious, they're easy to maintain. I have about 30 of them and another 30 uh, regular soil in pot plants. Would you explain what adaptive gardening is and how it differs from traditional gardening practices? Sure. Adaptive gardening is simply adapting your garden and your gardening to your changing physical conditions. If your knees hurt, you have to find a way to garden without kneeling with raised beds, containers, I'm particularly fond of elevated beds because I like to garden sitting down and there's a place to put your legs underneath the elevated beds. How does adaptive gardening contribute to the well-being and mental health of individuals facing physical limitations or health challenges? As you grow older, your knees wear out and your back wears out, your shoulders wear out, and adaptive gardening is simply finding ways in which you can continue gardening with minimum pain 
minimum disturbance to your health. It may start with just a pair of strap-on knee pads. And then it may go to getting one of these kneelers that doubles, you tip it over and it becomes a seat. Or one of the other gardening seats that are available online or at some garden stores and home centers. And then going to raised beds and elevated beds and containers. Eventually, perhaps concentrating on your indoor gardening. Do you find that it keeps promoting an independent spirit and self-sufficiency by continuing to garden? Oh, it sure does. Some people retire and all they do is sit in front of the television and they're dead in six months. I'll be 85 in November, so I figure can thank gardening for some of that longevity Yeah, because it keeps me busy. I can get up in the morning and I know I've got something productive to do. How I do it, or how anybody does it, is adapting is a matter of time management. Only work in blocks that are comfortable for you, maybe 20 minutes or maybe a half hour, and then take a, a rest break. If you're working outside, go into a shady spot. I used to go into my garage and sit and watch people walk their dogs up and down the street. Well, while you're there, always have a cooler of nice cold water and drink plenty of it because staying hydrated is very important to your well-being. Dehydration is one of the major causes of falls because people can get lightheaded and their balance goes crazy when they are dehydrated. Falling is one of the things you don't want to do out in the garden. I didn't realize that. I didn't know that dehydration led to dizziness. A doctor told me that I could always tell when I was dehydrated because my balance went wonky. I drank enough water, and an hour or so, it was back to normal. Yeah. Would you tell us about some of the decisions you had to make in your latter years? You said you're 85, but what are kind of some of the decisions you faced going through that time period? First of all, was downsizing. And this can be trauma for some people. I thought it was going to be for my late wife because she liked our house, and I didn't like our house because it was a money pit from the day we moved in. It was a half-acre lot with a two-story colonial on it. It was great for raising our four sons because they had plenty of grass to play ball and do kid stuff. When walking the stairs became difficult for both of us, she was the one who decided I think we ought to downsize. So we built a house that was about the same size as two-story, but it's one story on a quarter-acre lot. One of the things I tell people, if you're going to downsize, bring something from your old garden with you. Dig up some plants that you especially liked in your old garden that may have a story that goes with it or something with the family. I happen to bring a ginkgo tree. It was about, I don't know, four or five inches caliper and 15 or 20 feet tall. I didn't just dig it up and put it in the back seat of the car and bring it over. I had a client who had a big tree spade, and he moved it for me. Downsizing is the first decision. I used to do my grass. I timed it, not by the clock. I did the back and one side, and then I would sit down and rest for 20 minutes or so drink a bottle of water. Then I'd go out and do the front and the other side and then sit down for a while before I'd go on to the next gardening job. I was convinced at a certain point that I ought to hire a lawn cutting service, which I did. 
when I found that I couldn't get up from a kneeling position. That's when I hired the same the lawn care service to also do things like weeding and trimming my shrubs. I have a tree and landscape client. He does stuff like the heavy pruning, any tree climbing, because he has a tree care division. It wasn't a matter of whether I was going to quit gardening or not quit gardening. It was a matter of how I was going to do the gardening and still have a relatively painless life. Yeah. This was at the old house. No, the new house. You were cutting the grass at your new house? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you talked about the pain. What do you suggest to continue gardening when your knees do start causing you trouble? I suggest, first of all, anybody of any age, go get a pair of strap-on knee pads. A lot of gardeners get the cheapest ones, and they complain that the strap goes around the bend of the knee. Go to the next quality up, and it'll have a strap that goes above the knee bend and another strap that goes below it. Look into one of these kneelers or combination kneeler bench or something to sit on. If you're younger, use the knee pads to help prevent or put off the knee problems. Knees, for some reason, they just calcify. You get arthritis. I asked my orthopedic doctor, what causes it? He said, wear it out. I said to him, uh, Maybe it's too much genuflecting in church. And without missing a beat, he said, well, come on over to the Episcopal Church. We don't do that. (laughs) What about back pain? You have back pains at any age. As you get older, they seem to come up more often, especially after you do strenuous work in the garden. Some people can put a back brace on and others can. Some of the ways you can alleviate your problem or lessen your problem is don't lift with your back. Don't lean over and lift. Squat down, lift with your legs. Don't lift things above your head or you're going to wreck your shoulder. If you have to put them on a potting bench or a workbench, bring it up to about your waist, take a breath, resituate yourself, and then go the rest of the way. When you've got bags of fertilizer or bags of mulch, don't carry them out to the garden. Use a coaster wagon or a garden car or a wheelbarrow. It's better to pull it than push it. If you're going to use a wheelbarrow, get one with two wheels. It's more stable than one with one wheel. Some people can use back braces too. Elevated beds, raised beds, and containers allow you to sit and work in your garden, which is good for people with back problems. Yeah, I have a friend asked me one time, said, do you know what my most used garden tool is? I didn't have a clue what she was going to say. And she said hand trucks because she could just slide them up under any bag or a pot or anything and just pull back on it and move it around wherever she wanted to. That's right. I've got one of those and it's great, especially for moving pots around. My conveyance of choice is a coaster wagon. Yeah, they don't even sell coaster wagons anymore, I wonder. They do. Most of them are plastic. They even have folding ones. Mm -hmm. They're a metal frame and a canvas around the frame. They fold up. Yeah, that way you could transport it around, too, if you needed to, real easy. If you want to get a real heavy-duty one, you know the ones that garden centers have that have the big wheels and the sides that fold down? Mm -hmm. I think Gardener Supply sells them. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're not cheap. (laughs) Yeah, those would be real handy, I would think. Yeah, they are. No. (laughs) No, they're all still constructed in those big tires. They'll last forever. 
I got some wheelbarrows I call Yeti wheelbarrows, and they've got like these six-inch wide wheels on them, and the handles on them are probably two inches by two inches, and they're oak, and they just last forever. Now, they're not cheap either, but that's probably not something you'd use at an older age, but there's some tools you can buy and pay the money for them, and they're well worth it to go ahead and buy the higher-quality tool. Things that people have to look at is how to adapt. And one is tend your garden, don't toil in it, work smarter, not harder, and embrace imperfection. Some of the things that that you can do if you're digging up perennials because they're overgrowing their space and dividing them every year or two, next time you dig them up, give all four pieces away. Don't put one back in the hole. Replace them with shrubs or dwarf conifers. Shrubs, they only need a little pruning once a year. Dwarf conifers. I've got two dwarf Norway spruce that I got in 2009 in my backyard. I've never even had to prune them. When I design, I want to understand the space that the plant's going in length, width, height, and use a plant that's going to fit into that space and let it grow to its natural form and shape and not even prune it unless it's just a snip here or there. But most things I do from a low maintenance standpoint, I think that's a great way to go is just buy plants that don't overgrow their space. Embracing imperfection is important too, because so many times we want to have something perfect. We see these gardens like Longwood Gardens that are trim to perfection. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a staff of people who trim them to perfection. That's not nature's way. If nature were perfect, we wouldn't have to have this conversation, <laughs> Craig, because we wouldn't be having all these diseases and problems, knees wearing out and backs wearing out. It's the same with plants. When you walk through a forest that the plants are in perfect rows, nature didn't plant them that way. People planted them that way. Nature seats germinate wherever they fall. Okay, you're in New York and I'm in Georgia. Temperatures can be an issue no matter where you live. What's your advice for dealing with temperature extremes? Well, up here, watering, for example, down there you have to irrigate, don't you, quite often? It depends on what plants you choose. We're in a drought right now, and I haven't watered my plants one time, but it's because I've got plants that will work in dry times. We're in an area that has one of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario to the north, and to the south, the Finger Lakes. So we got lots of water. Mm -hmm. It's seldom that we run dry or that we even have advisories. I've had my son connect a hose in the backyard at the beginning of the season because I have a holly that was planted last fall and it was looking a little peaked because we weren't getting much rain. So I was going to water it and the day I was going to water it, the state had a air advisory because of wildfires in Quebec province whose smoke was coming down here. As I sit where I am now looking out my window, I couldn't even see the house across the street because uh, the smoke was so thick. Wow. So I decided the plant was under warranty and I wasn't. So I didn't go out there and <laughs> water it. And the next day, we got rain. Today, as of last night, we we're something like 6.54 inches over average for this year for rain. That's great. Yeah, I don't want to leave you in under the impression that nobody ever irrigates here because they do, especially as in the turf crisis when we're trying to seek perfection. It goes back to what you were saying earlier. Everybody wants that perfect lawn. But if you allow the lawns, like the warm season grasses, to go dormant that we have here, 
then they'll bounce right back when it starts raining again. That seeking of perfection is... They do here, too. I suggest to people for the occasion when they need to water, get soaker hoses. Mm -hmm. The ones made of recycled tires and snake them through your beds and mulch over them so you don't even see them. When you have to water, you just turn the spigot on a quarter turn because if you turn it on anymore, it's going to make the hose explode because it's such porous rubber. When you do have to water, prioritize. Any new trees or shrubs, that should be number one on your list. Number two, perennials. Don't worry about your annuals because you're going to be having to change them out pretty soon anyway. And as for your grass, unless you got lots of money to pay your water bill, let it go brown because it's going to green up when the rain comes back. Let's talk about temperature. How do you handle gardening in the warmer temperatures and the cold temperatures? Garden when it's comfortable for you. If you can't stand 90 degree heat, don't go out and garden in the afternoon, go in the early morning or in the later afternoon when it's starting to cool off. If you're always cold, then you might be better off gardening in the afternoon. Do you garden in your area when it's in the winter or do you just let everything go dormant and not worry about it? Let everything go dormant. Yeah. Because last year, when it was such a easy winter, I only had my driveway plowed three times. And three times is nothing up here. I've always thought of gardening as a marathon. What can a gardener do to increase their fading endurance? I don't think you can stop your fading endurance, but you can live with it. First of all, by doing warm-up exercises before you start and cooling down exercises. If you're under a doctor's care, Mention it to the doctor and let them tell you what you can and can't do in the way of exercises. Many of them will refer you to a physical therapist, and Medicare will probably cover the physical therapy with a copay. The physical therapist, at least this is what happened with me, physical therapist will give you an exercise regimen that you can do at home, and that'll help. And the other thing is timing out how long you work. Start out your day with the most strenuous work and just work until your 20 minutes or half hour is up. Take your break. When you come back, go to a less strenuous job. Each time you take a break, when you come back, go to an even less strenuous job all through the day. You'll probably be just as productive, even though you won't get each job done that day. It runs contrary to what we were taught as kids. Mom and Dad said, when you start a job, finish it. Well, I'm saying, when you start a job, go on to a less strenuous job after your break, and you'll be more productive. And just stretch it out over several days. Yeah. Okay. Walkers and wheelchairs can become a part of staying mobile. What ideas do you suggest to continue gardening with these mobility challenges? Well, I use a walker, and... If you have a raised bed with a wide cap board, you can kind of sit on it. But the problem is you're parallel to the side of the board, so you're reaching over to do your gardening work. If you have elevated beds, you can actually sit down. There's a place to put your knees under the bed as you're working. And you can get lightweight tools with expandable extension handles. You can set them to where it needs to be to work in that bed. As far as your garden paths, convert them to smooth, wide paths. 
They should be at least four feet wide to accommodate a wheelchair or a walker. A good paving is flagstone or bluestone set in concrete so that it's not bumpy. And also place your steps with gentle inclines. You have uh, visual impairments when you make those inclines. Be sure you have handrails and don't start the handrails just at the top of the incline and at the bottom of the incline. Give the person plenty of notice that the incline's coming. So extend the handrails substantially further in either direction. That's a good idea. Tell us some resources that will help the gardener who has downsized to a small backyard. Yeah, there's a book that I would recommend. It's called The Urban Garden. It's written by Kathy Jentz and Terry Speed. It's called The Urban Garden, but it has literally 101 ideas for small space gardens. It doesn't matter whether that small space garden is in the city or in the suburbs or in boondocks. It's got great ideas in it. I would read that when I was trying to make my decision. Are there specific tools, equipment, or modifications that you can make to existing tools for those interested in getting started with adaptive gardening? Your old faithful tool is probably starting to get too heavy in your hands. Shovels, rakes, and hoes, they're being made in new lightweight materials these days. The blades are lightweight metal, but strong metal, and the handles are fiberglass. And if you have arthritic fingers like I do, and you have trouble grasping them, we recommend putting foam around them. You can either use foam pipe insulation. The downsides of that is it comes like Henry Ford's Model T in any color you want, long as it's black. There's a slit that goes lengthwise because they have to wrap it around the air conditioning pipes. You have to use duct tape, put it lengthwise to seal the slit, and then around the end to hold it onto the handle. When I was giving a presentation, somebody suggested using pool noodles. You just slip right on the handle, and you can get the same color or contrasting color duct tape, and you just have to wrap it around the ends to seal the ends. If you're one of these many gardeners who inadvertently leaves tools out in the garden because you forget them, when they're bright blue and blaze orange and safety green, you're not going to miss them. Take them back to the shed or the garage. Then there are ergonomic trowels and hand rakes. As I mentioned before, tools with extension handles so you can set them at the length that's comfortable for you in your raised or elevated beds. Okay, you've written a book, The Geriatric Gardener. What is it about your book that is going to tell us things that we can't find on the internet? It's actually a compilation and an edited version of my first two years of blogging. You can find it on the internet. You have to scroll way back four years to get to it. Put it all together in a logical sequence in the six sections and 60 chapters, like how adaptive garden, making important decisions, making less important decisions, adaptive gardening through the seasons, and when outdoor gardening is out of the question. You can open that up to the table of contents and find who you have a question about before you can even boot up your computer.
Where's the best place to order your book? We're selling it direct because knowing that senior citizens are on fixed income, I wanted to keep it inexpensive. So the cover price is fourteen ninety five. The only place to get it, the geriatricgardener.wordpress.com. If you go to my blog, at the end of each post, click on the link and that'll take you to our secure website portal for ordering the book. Anything else that you'd like to tell us about the book? Well, the thing I, I like about the book is it's very experiential. Most of the suggestions I make to you is stuff I've done myself. It gets into not only the three seasons that we actively garden, but into the four seasons of winter. And for the people that you have snow, I have ideas on how to get rid of the snow. First of all, don't shovel and how to negotiate a contract with a driveway plow contractor, how to make sure you get them to do what you want them to do. For example, at my house, my ginkgo tree is on one side of the driveway near the garage. I have a garden of ornamental grasses and black-eyed Susans and flocks and the yucca in the middle of the front yard on the other side. I had to work hard to get this plow contractor to not push the snow on either side. He couldn't figure out how to do it. Well, finally, after I explained to him how I wanted it done, go up to the garage, drop the plow, pull it back beyond the gardens, and then push it over to the side. He's gotten it after three years. Yay. (laughs) Most people don't know what adaptive gardening is. Whenever I give a presentation, the first thing I ask is, have you ever heard adaptive gardening? And only one group has ever shook their head yes. Most of them say no. group that said yes was the Master Gardeners Association. I didn't know what adaptive gardening was either when I started the blog. After several months, I belonged to an organization that you and I belong to called Garden Communicators International, Garden Cobb. And I was with a group of bloggers, and they asked everybody to give their name and say what they did. So I explained what I did. Somebody said, oh, adaptive gardening. Sounded good to me. I checked Google, and sure enough, that's the term for what I was writing about. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? Think 40 or 50 years down the road. Even if you're not living there, it could Increase the value of your home when you go to sell it. Things like your garden paths. Next time you're going to renovate your garden, make your garden paths four feet wide. Make them smooth with flag or bluestone set in concrete so that somebody can go on them with a walker or wheelchair. Use inclines instead of stairs. And use shrubs and dwarf conifers rather than perennials. Do all the stuff now because the price of construction isn't going to go down. Eventually, you're going to do it. In my presentations, when I get to raised beds, I use a picture that was given to me by Brent and Becky Heath of Becky's Bulbs of a raised bed with tulips and other bulb flowers in it. It's on the roof garden of their home. I use it partly, first of all, explain that it's a beautifully built raised bed. It looks almost like a piece of furniture, and it's got the wide cap boards, so you can sit on them and do your gardening. Another reason to use that picture is there's unwritten law, it seems, that you can only grow veggies in raised beds. 
can raise flowers, and they look very nice in raised beds. The third thing was when they had the, the roof garden built, they had the infrastructure built in for a stair lift so that if one of them needs it, all they have to do is mount the chair on the rail, hook up the electricity, throw the switch, bingo, they have a chair lift taking them up top of the steps. So prior planning on that. Yes, plan ahead. What is your earliest garden memory? Weeding the family victory garden when I was a kid. Do you like doing that? No. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture and landscape as a profession? I've gotten into gardening per se in the back door. I started my college career at what was then the New York State College of Forestry at Syracuse University. I went to school with the idea of being a pulp and paper chemist, which was one of their majors. Found that I hated chemistry when I took freshman chemistry, which everybody had to take. So I decided on landscape architecture. After two and a half years, realized that I couldn't draw and had gotten interest in radio and television. That's why I transferred across campus and got my degree in radio and television. But then in 1970, I was working for a public relations firm. A friend of my boss owned a large tree and landscape company, and he decided he needed a public relations firm. He came to us. I became not only his public relations person, but also a good friend of his. I think he liked the fact that we could go to breakfast once a week, and he didn't have to teach me how a tree grew before we could do the work that had to be done. As a result, we were doing some really unusual stuff, particularly for the tree care part of the business. He was kind of who got me into gardening. I was admiring a small tree, topiary, one of the gardens around his office. Poodle tree would just leave the tufts on the end of the branches. He said, if you got the guts to do it, I'll give you the tree. From his personal nursery behind his house, went up, we got the tree, planted it. After it had gotten established, ready to get shorn. One day, my wife and I set aside to do this. We took the needles and branches off and left just the tufts. I would pull one branch back, and she'd decide whether it should stay or go. And then we'd switch, and she'd pull it back, and I'd just decide whether it should stay or go. And that's how we did it. As far as I know, it's still growing over at that house. I was interested in science first. I found I didn't care for science. I wanted to do something in an art form. That's why I picked landscape architecture. The good Lord made me a better verbal communicator than a graphic communicator. In fact, in one of my many sessions with the registrar at the school, he asked me, what do you really want to do in forestry? And I said, public relations. He looked at me strangely and said, how are you going to do that? And I mentioned the guy who was the public relations person for the college. He said, oh, yeah, he probably could. I guess it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because in 1970, I began doing public relations for the Tree and Landscape Company. We were invited to write columns for a trade magazine, give presentations at trade shows. Pretty soon, I was getting calls from Tree and Landscape Companies all over the country. We published newsletters for dozens of them during the 70s. But then the internet came along, and they figured they could get this for free. I think some of them are still using the copy from those 1970s and 80s printed newsletters. We've also worked for the industry trade associations. 
suppliers of tree and landscape equipment to tree and landscape companies. Do you have a funny garden story for us? Oh, <laughs> do you know Dr. Kim Coder? I do. I was at a ISA conference, International Society of Arboriculture conference. He was speaking on biomechanics, and I told him that my ginkgo tree has a frost crack, and it was spiraling around the trunk. He said, that's because the crown is off-center. I said, I don't think so, because I think I pruned it so that it was pretty symmetrical. He said, I know it was. I said, do you think it'll fail? He said, yeah, probably not in your lifetime, but it'll probably fail. Came home, and I looked at the tree from all different angles. Darn, he was right. (laughs) So called my tree and landscape company, and they came and pruned it right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he amazes me. Telling the symptoms, he can nail it. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? That first tree and landscape company owner. His name was Ted Collins. Not only did he teach me a lot about the tree and landscape business and about horticulture, but he was a good friend and a good professional role model. I think maybe it was months away from his 90th birthday when he died getting ready for work. One day, leaving a restaurant after we had had lunch together, he said he had been to his doctor that day, and his doctor had told him he was like a shark. He said, what does that mean? The doctor told him, if a shark stops swimming, it'll die. And if you stop working, you'll die. Yeah. I guess that's how I feel. Yeah. Another person who was a good role model, his name was Dick Abbott. He owned a company called ACRT, which is still going. It's a training and consulting firm for the tree care industry. It's based in Ohio. What is your most valuable garden mistake? It happened just last year. One of the trees that I had planted when we first had this house built was a weeping mulberry. I figured it was going to be a fairly small plant. I put it in the corner of the house, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it weeped, and it weeped, and it weeped. It was over the roof, dropping stuff into the gutter pipes. I had a white fringe tree on the other side of it. That was fine till I had to use a walker. I wanted to enjoy my fringe tree from my patio, but this monster, it was like a big octopus with all of these tentacles, was in the way. I had it removed. I mentioned the holly that needed water. That's what I replaced it with. Now, we've talked a little bit about your garden, but I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I'm not a native plant person, so in my garden, I've got my ginkgo tree, which is credited with coming from China, although they found fossil remains in North America, Japanese weeping red maple, Korean lilacs, English boxwood. In the back, I've got this white fringe tree, a couple of river birch, because white birch have so many diseases and insect problems in this area. I don't know about all over, but sure do in this area. Some arborvitae and some potentilla a few scattered perennials, and a couple of hollies. Then I've got a hill in the back, and that's got the cultivated plants on that, which I used to keep weeded and mulched meticulously. Had juniper and false cypress, Korean lilac. When I couldn't climb that hill anymore to do that, I let it go natural. Now it has all kinds of uh, volunteer plants, trees, 
and unfortunately vines grow on top of the junipers, so I have to have them pulled out a couple times a year. What have you learned from your garden last year that you're going to apply to it this year? Watering, mainly. Keep an eye on nature's water and follow my own advice on prioritizing what I water. Do you have any future plans for your garden? No, it's a very mature garden. I'm concentrating on my indoor garden. Tell us about your indoor garden. I've got three Christmas cactus that I got in various situations. Before 2017, my firm had an office in an office building. One year, I found somebody had gotten a Christmas cactus as a gift and thrown it in the trash. So I brought it home. It's grown fine. None of the one was given to me as a present. And another one I got back last winter because one of my daughters-in-law texted me and sent me this picture of this beautiful, big old Christmas cactus. It was under stress. And she asked me if I wanted it. It was her late grandmother's. And when her grandmother died, her aunt took it. And then when she moved into a manufactured home, didn't have the room for it. So she gave it to my daughter-in-law. Wasn't doing well in their house. I liked the table that it was on, too. So I said, if the table comes with it, I'll take it. It's doing fantastic in my house. We have a lot of Hawarthia because I bought one Hawarthia once. Just produced a lot of offshoots who produced a lot of offshoots. Got a rubber plant, a bunch of cactus, then the air plants. The air plants are particularly uh, important to me now because when I had the stroke and started using a walker, it was kind of hard to carry a watering can. My significant other began watering them. They seemed to like her regimen better than mine. With the air plants, I have a rubber-made food container that they all fit in nicely. So every other weekend, I go around the house and pick them up and take them into the kitchen, soak them for about an hour and a half. Then I put them on a, a towel that somebody gave me for Christmas that says, sometimes I wet my plants, <laughs> and let them dry for half an hour or so, and then take them back to their homes. A couple of them are in a chunk of cactus log. One of them is in little cast concrete of a Volkswagen bus, filled it with stone, put one with a flat bottom on the stone, kind of looks like somebody taking a Christmas tree home, sticking out of the sunroof of their bus. Some of them are in bud vases, and some of them are in various containers with this gravel in it to bring them up to the top. Is there anything else we should have talked about? One book that I recommend people read has nothing to do with adaptive gardening. That's called Slow Gardening by Felder Rushing. It doesn't have anything to do with adaptive gardening, but it's how to make your garden your garden and not one for the neighbors. What was one of the takeaways for you in that book? Putting that garden in the middle of my front yard. <laughs> Nobody else has it. <laughs> so you're being a maverick garden there then. Yeah. That's great. When do you know when to ask for help in your gardening? When something looks like a daunting task, when you need something lifted up that you know is going to be too heavy and is going to hurt you, the first people you ask is family, the neighbors and friends. There are garden clubs that help each other. They'll have a garden party at somebody's house where they need something done, host serves pizza or 
hamburgers or something for lunch. Ask family, particularly kids, grandkids, even great-grandkids, and give them a few plants and a place to really do their own gardening as well as helping you with the garden rather than just give them the grunt tasks like weeding. I did when I was a kid <laughs> so that they can raise the plant, harvest the produce if it's vegetable plant or the flowers if it's a flower plant. This is the best way to do it. If you needed to hire a gardener, I don't know what to tell you. Around here, finding professional gardeners is really difficult. There are landscapers, some of whom, like the one that I use, they'll do weeding and stuff for you, but they're not really gardeners. In my presentations, I always use a picture from a place called Minter Gardens out in Vancouver. It was a public garden, which is now closed. They had a sculpture of a gardener with a pair of clippers. He was standing next to a tree, clipping the tree. And I tell him, this is the only gardener I could find. <laughs> but interestingly, I was in Buffalo talking to a Master Gardener Association. I asked them about if there were professional gardeners in the Buffalo area, and they said yes. Now we're 75 miles east, and we can't find any gardeners. There's a chapter in my book about finding help, how to deal with a landscaper. If you want them to do gardening, you can't just say, go to it, or they'll be pulling out stuff they shouldn't be pulling out, cutting stuff they shouldn't be cutting. I have on my computer here a paper by Cass Turnbull. She's died now, but she was head of an organization out in Seattle called Tree Amnesty. They were an organization that tried to educate people about the perils of topping trees. She had written this piece I downloaded it from the internet on hiring a gardener, and she quoted a friend of hers as saying, you can tell a gardener from a landscaper because the gardener has dirty knees and the landscaper smells of gasoline. <laughs> and she went on to explain that the gardener gets closer to the plants and works on individual plants where the landscaper is production-oriented and uses as much power equipment as they can to get the job done as quickly as they can. That's good. I agree with that. Dwayne, tell us how folks may connect with you. They can connect at thegeriatricgardener.wordpress.com, which is my blog URL. At the end of each post is also a link where you can order the book. This has been Episode 129, Gardeners Never Retire, Overcoming Challenges in Your Senior Years with Dwayne Pancoast. Thank you, Dwayne. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.